Uh, so let's talk about music. My name is Sergio Barrer. I'm a composer and pianist of the classical persuasion. And with me, I have as a guest, Mark Shapiro, who is a conductor in New York, conducts the Cantori New York, among other choruses. Hi, Mark. Hi, Sergio. It's nice to have you in our podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yes, it's nice to be in my apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, Do you do, are you conducting any other choirs before besides the Cantori right now? So I conduct two ensembles in addition to Cantori. I conduct the Cecilia Chorus and Orchestra of New York, which is an oratorio society. And I conduct the Prince Edward Island Symphony in Canada. Oh, where is Prince Edward Island? Uh, so that's on the um, Eastern Canada and the Maritime Provinces. Okay. Yeah. I, that would require an explanation, but we were not going to get into that. Okay, we can. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, let me ask you the first question that I ask everybody. How did sure. you end up being a conductor? So who is to say, really? Um, I do remember that in kindergarten, we had show and tell, and I brought in a, a an LP of Nutcracker and a chopstick. So... <laughs> Somehow, uh, at the age of five or six, I must have seen conducting. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, and I know we did go to the Leonard Bernstein, those young people's concerts. And oh, yeah? I think so, yes. And I remember there was an orchestra in a nearby town uh, which had concerts that we went to hear. So I had an early exposure to it, and somehow, I guess the there was something about the conductor role that appealed to me. Yeah, I remember conducting uh, Fantasia in front of my uh, of my record player. Yeah, so mm -hmm. there is an appeal, definitely. Yeah, and um, and how? What is it that you enjoy the most about it? I think it's evolved over the years. I think you know it's going to sound a little bit. Uh, maybe trite and saintly, but I really enjoy the music itself. So I think one of the things about conducting that can be a great privilege is the, the closeness you have to the music itself, um, how deeply you can get into it, how much you think about how it works. Because I think one of the things that makes conducting interesting as you mature is you realize it's not about you at all. It's about understanding the operation of the music itself and how you can support the players or singers in delivering that score and add some inspiration. So that all, that's endlessly interesting. Um, and especially when the music is great. And then in another part of my work, I get to work a lot with composers who are alive. And that's very interesting because you can, especially you can be very interactive about um, how the piece can, um, flow even better and deliver its message more clearly. And the minds of composers, I think, are interesting minds. So that's also, I enjoy that. That's that's great. I uh, I have a friend that is a conductor that tells me that what he likes the most is to be awash in music in the center of the music. Yeah, it's wonderful. When it's happening. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I I can see that. Um, I also, I also saw 
you sent me some samples of stuff that you have programmed. I wanted yep. to talk a little bit about your programming. I, I saw that you like new music and as a composer, I'm very thankful that you like new music. Sure. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, somebody has to be playing the live composers, as you say. Sure. And, um, um, yep. yeah. And, um, so how do you program your, your concerts? Do you, do you, yeah. How do you? Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's more to programming often than meets the eye. Um, I think sometimes it's like, you know, running a restaurant is you, you have a particular cuisine and palate and taste and the kind of gestalt that you're trying to unify and project. Um, I think for musical works, one thing I particularly seek out is longer pieces. So hmm. Cantori New York in particular, um, you know, and it's it's one of the things that happens in, in choral circles is that a lot of the pieces are two and three minutes, maybe right. five, you know, and um, I think that can be great. But one of the things that I like, I think it's because I also do have a symphony and I also conduct opera that I like the kind of the longer time span where you can really shape a narrative and feel how something is unfolding over a span of time. I think that's an interesting challenge, certainly for a composer and also as a conductor to be shaping longer pieces. So for Cantori, I think we are particularly have that bias to longer pieces. Uh, Cecilia Chorus is an oratorial society, so that probably comes with that territory anyway, that most of the things we do are cantatas and oratorios, so they are longer forms. Um, I do like that. You know, we're getting into holiday season now. Cantori does uh, a holiday concert that we've been doing for years where we do short, you know, carols. Yeah. Um, and that's very nice, but I, most of the works we've done, we just did a concert and things are, you know, 20 minutes is like the shortest piece we would do. So, oh, wow. yeah, maybe, in, you know, in some cases shorter, but I like that that span. And then a uh, composer with an interesting voice, as, uh, you know, baseline um, competence about voice leading and the sense of understanding of harmony, counterpoint, um, and some somewhere a distinctive voice, somebody who has, seems to have something interesting musically to say. And then, of course, text. You know, we're very interested in in the choice of text um relevance is part of it but not only and a feeling that the texts sort of you know high to a high standard i see so um so let me so when you put a, a program together you have two or three long pieces or basically right or four pieces but how do you select what do, do you what goes with what Well, yeah. Do you do you try to give variety? Do you have to do you put a subject as as an organizing as an organizing uh, subject of the concert or yeah? How do you how do you think those things? It's a great question, and I think there is there's on the one hand there's a kind of marketing angle where you know you want to have a theme. I'm actually not a, a big fan of a theme. I think th those things can get. Um, a little corny, a little quickly. So, you know, you have the, the birds and the bees and there's my my dog behind us, I see. But um, yeah. Um, yeah, so you have, you know, so we don't really do that kind of thing. 
Sometimes I think it happens that we have an intuition, or I do maybe about this piece would go well with this other piece. Um, very interested in contrast. And right. there's also instrumentation. So we like to do these longer pieces, mostly that have a couple of instruments other than piano. That's something we often do. Um, so sometimes the instrumentation is what determines the, the match of the pieces. So it can be a lot of different factors. Um, a concert that Cantori just did, uh -huh. uh, there were three works. One was, we opened the concert, um, let's see, I guess the, the guiding piece was, um, we jointly commissioned Derek Skye, who is a uh -huh. composer based in California, uh, who's, who's having a big moment right now, and I think that will continue. Uh, that was a joint commission with the Cecilia Chorus of New York. So he wrote a piece called Neither Separated Nor Undone. And Cantori had wanted to program a piece by Tariq O'Regan called A Letter of Rights, which was for nine players, I think eight, uh, ten, eight strings, I'm not exactly remembering, flute uh, and percussion. Um, and then Derek, we proposed that he write a piece with the same instrumentation. And then we wanted to honor the centenary of George Walker, who was a pioneering American black composer who would turn 100 this year, uh, who won his first Pulitzer Prize at age 72, I think it was. Um, and so then there somebody. There's hope for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's what we said to the audience, you know, all of us late bloomers in the room. Yeah, right. Good news, right? So then we have a number of um, musicians, composers in, in Cantori. And one of them orchestrated uh, George Walker's piece with permission from his estate for that ensemble. So we had a very unified evening musically where we had the Walker and then O'Regan and then Sky. And people started to find thematic connections. Um, George Walker's pieces use Elizabethan texts. Uh, mm -hmm. The O'Regan talks about the Magna Carta. And then Derek's piece is sort of a reflection on society today. And Derek is a very optimistic composer, so there's a lot about what unites us as well as what separates us. So somehow these themes really flowed and made, I think, a very satisfying program. So I think there, there are often ways you can yeah. find these connections of things that work well together. Um, if I can offer a riff also from my orchestral side, uh -huh. sure. the program I'm, I'm rather proud of. So... Prince Edward Island Symphony is about to do Mahler 5. And okay. I was looking for what could possibly go with that. You know, and we didn't have a <laughs> soloist. Um, and I had an idea that I still think it's it's going to be a lot to rehearse, but it's really a great idea. So Eric Korngold has something called the Baby Serenade, which is a very sweet, lighthearted piece, but very much of the same era and the same language as Mahler. Right. But it's really... Um, light and dark um, in the same kind of spirit. They're both Jewish. And I think one feels also that kind of sensibility in the room. And I think it's a really good program. I think that'll be a very interesting uh, experience. How long is the Korngold? The cor this particular Korngold is 20-something uh, minutes, 23 yeah. maybe. Korngold yeah. made, made his most name as a, as a movie composer. Sure. He so made I, a, a great name for himself and he brought real music to the movies. 
Yes, I think like so many of these Jewish emigres, he went to Hollywood and found a lot to do um, yeah. and a big demand for his work. Um, <clears throat> I think Robin Hood was one of his yeah, scores. I, yeah, I was yeah. thinking about Robin Hood particularly. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And then, you know, his violin concerto is quite famous. Um, and he has uh, Die Tote Schott, an opera that got a lot of performances. And I think Berlin Symphony is touring right now with his uh, symphony in F sharp. So that piece is having a bit of a renaissance. So yeah, wonderful composer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's very nice. You know, I come from the piano background and, and uh, during my mentor used to program things, you know, there was, there was a kind of a programming idea at, uh, you know, in the 50s, 40s, 60s, um, you know, you had Baroque, classical, romantic, contemporary. Yeah. You know, the, the it was kind of standard because Very I remember stupid. his program, he used to have a program like that. And then suddenly I go and I see Horowitz playing and he has a program exactly like that. Yeah. So that was that was the, the style of the time. You know, you have to have from all different times and you had to to show yeah. them, you know. But that's that's how it that's how it um it went. Now you sent me some very interesting samples. I want to share it with our with our audience now some of the music you sure. sent me. And um the the aesthetic let's let's do the the steer the Stuart Greenbaum, the brought to Stuart. light. Yeah. What is that piece about? So I love the, the this whole connection with Stu Greenbaum. So uh -huh. Stuart is now chair of composition in Melbourne, Australia. Okay. Um, and I love the story of how we got to know each other and how we reconnected. So shortly after I started as Cantori's uh, artistic director, mm -hmm. which is over 30 years ago, unbelievably for me, wow. um, we did a call for scores the old fashioned way where right. people mailed scores to a mailbox. Um, right. And we got a pile of scores and I went through all of them. And Stuart from Australia had kind of seen the call and, you know, randomly thought, mm, I think I'll send these people a piece. And I thought it was fantastic, very imaginative, very different. The poems were wonderful. Um, so we did it. And at that time, Stuart and I were corresponding by sending letters to each other by the mail. <laughs> um, so we How did quaint. that. Yeah, it is very quaint <laughs> to think about. And then um, we commissioned a piece for him, from him, uh, shortly thereafter. So this is also about 30 years ago, which was called The Foundling. Uh, he wrote this um, same poet, wrote the text, Ross Baglin, who's in, in England, uh, and a longtime collaborator of Stewart's. And that was for string quartet and vibraphone, including bowed vibraphone, some crazy effects there. Um, and then we were planning to celebrate my 30th season with Cantori. And I thought, you know, I was thinking about people. I thought, you know, I wonder what ever became of Stuart. Um, and I looked him up and saw that he had become chair of the composition in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. um, and now, of course, we had the Internet. So I got in touch with him and we started talking about, you know, being nice to write to do something. Uh, so we had a sort of the outline of a project and then COVID came. I... And so we were not able to do anything that actually coincided with the calendar year of my 30th season. Um, 
But meanwhile, the, the piece started to really take on a real sense of purpose of when we come out of COVID, what do we want to be singing? And there was some tremendous intuition that Stu and his same poet um, had that brought to light is about a, the the um, creation of a train tunnel. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the excavation of a tunnel. And the tunnel became this metaphor for our experience as musicians particularly, but as the world in general, in COVID, where we're kind of in this dark place that feels very static, but that is the same time is tunneling towards something. So Stuart's piece has a kind of arc of kind of the opposite arc from many pieces. A lot of pieces go like this or like uh -huh. that. And right. Stuart's kind of does this. Which is like going down and then up as opposed yeah. to going up and down or straight up. Right. right. Just for the so, people, because this is not going to, nobody's going to see this. So oh, I see. When you did okay. that, I said, you know, okay. I, I saw it, yes. but nobody else was going to Yes, okay. I'm gesticulating with my hands. Right. Very right. So, um, yeah, so the, the shape of Stuart's piece is a kind of reverse uh, parabola, you know, upside right. down. So it, go, it goes down and kind of comes up. Um, and it's, we worked on it a lot. One of the things that I do much more now than I used to is I, I really, with composers where we have a lot of mutual trust, uh -huh. uh, we do a great deal with a lot of revision together and shaping together. And um, a friend of mine, Paul Crabtree, who's also based in California, whose music I've done a lot, says, you know, I, I enjoy working with you. It's like having a tailor who just, you know, really, so the clothes fit really well. You know, everything is really, uh, has a nice cut. So uh, with Stuart, we did that and then more even in, in the bigger shape of the piece. So with Stuart, we really took the idea of length to a major extreme. His piece is an hour. So it's, okay. it's really massive. And one of the challenges that we both experienced, me as conductor and him as composer, is can we make this interesting for an hour? For an hour, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's a challenge. Yes, and I think we we felt that we got there. You know, the group stayed engaged and the audience really came along for the ride. Um, and people felt it was really meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we did discuss with the audience at the beginning that this was a way for us of reliving what we had been through in the pandemic and then coming out of it. And I think with that subtext, a lot of people really could feel that without being, without reliving it and being depressed by it, right? It, it did have that cathartic role that we want music and theater to have for us. So that I is that. brought to light. It's this very lengthy piece, um, beautiful poetry about this journey mm -hmm. through darkness into light. Okay, we're gonna hear it now. The segment that you I I usually like to listen to it with you and then be able to comment afterwards sure. as opposed to just putting it later on the on the program. So <laughs> let me let me share the sound. Uh, it'll probably not sound very good to you right now, but that's why we have editing later. Okay, sure enough, it's uh it's easier. Okay, share.
<clears throat> That's very nice. I um uh, the this is the first movement, right? It's called um one second, let me turn. Little Benjamin Britain uh, crashing. Yeah, yeah. But that's YouTube. It just goes to the next thing. That's okay. <laughs> it's uh that's what editing is for. Yeah. Yeah. And um how would you describe the aesthetics of uh of Grimba? I mean Well, I think it's a good question. I should mention, I don't know if you want to edit um but in what you played, there's an effect of, there's a repetition, an overlay of the thing on itself. Right. Right. So that, that's not part of the piece. That's somehow something happened in the transfer of the file. So. Okay. There's a, pro a technical problem there. At the very beginning, you mean? Th throughout. Oh. Where there's kind of the same music is happening one second later. So. So that's that's why I was thinking why the diction is not that clear, but if you have it one second later, it would throw off things. Yeah, so there's something happening in the in the electronics there. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll have to, to I'll have to check that out in, in the copy I have in the yeah. Okay. I'll if, okay. if if we need anything, if we if we need to work on it. I'll, I'll yep. let you know if it doesn't work. If if I hear that there was something a little bit right fuzzy so, about it, yeah, you know, and that if there's an overlay, if one second that that'll account for it for sure, right? It was so there's that, yeah. Um, so to come back to your question about what is uh, to style, aesthetic. yeah, you know, I think it's um, I think he would probably say that he has evolved over the. Years and we talked a lot about uh, a few things. One, I did not know that he was very um, interested in the music of Arbopert. So when he was writing this piece, that was very much in his mind. Uh -huh. And this idea of kind of ritualized repetition is yeah. something, you know, one, one of the big questions I think that musicians have always wrestled with and continue to today is what do I do with repetition? So, Definitely. you know, Stuart told me that as a younger composer, you know, he had internalized a message from his te several teachers. First, <laughs> too little repetition, then he should repeat much more. So I think he, one of the conversations that we had back and forth mm -hmm. was what amount of repetition feels musically and theatrically continuing to be interesting and where it starts to feel repetitive in a way that is not as engaging so yeah. we looked a lot for you know when the repetition started to feel like you know somebody who's been at the party too long or the guest who will not go home you know so <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. and if you're trying to write an hour yeah you have to wrestle with that i'm sure you really do. And, you know, plus he had a lot on his plate and, you know, so there, and I think there is a, there is a sort of seduction of what computer notation does for us. And I think I hear it in a lot of pieces. It's so easy to repeat because you just kind of, you know, click and paste. So yeah, um, I think that there's a real temptation there and a real challenge 
which I think is something I try to do when I work with composers of, you know, I'm trying to really imagine this as I'm listening to it live in an auditorium, thinking that the idea is we're still a live art form. So I think, you know, we'll see what the future holds for us. There's an increasing amount of certainly the composers I teach in some contexts who really aren't even thinking about live performance primarily. You know, they're thinking about the first contact with their piece is on the internet. And that it's it starts life as an album and it continues as a something you see on the internet. Maybe it's performed live, but that not is not necessarily everybody's immediate first thought about composing if they're 20 years old. So, um, you know, that's a very new idea that that's not where you're starting historically. So, you know, you mentioned before composers in the programming of your teachers going through history. Right. Um, there was always the assumption that the music would be played live for other people who were there. So, yeah. and start to finish. So, and they, the people wouldn't be necessarily texting while they were listening to it. So, um, <laughs> or they would you know, be yeah. coming in and out of the room. So um, to answer your question about what sort of style Stuart is writing in, I think he is thinking about repetition and minimalism. Yeah. Um, and looking for ways to make these things interesting as time marches on. So I see. the harmony can be relatively static. Sometimes he's, he'll be on a chord for a while. Yeah. Uh, he looks for ways to energize it rhythmically. Yeah. So, you know, and there are textures. And I think one of the things we both discovered is that... Um, there are certain changes in texture that are interesting enough that the music doesn't feel literally repeated. And I remember there was one particular edit where I, I had said to him, you know, I think this needs a little something. Okay. Um, and he, he had the idea of introducing a kind of grace note as a motive, a kind of little appoggiatura. Okay. And I'm still fascinated by it because just that little appoggiatura really is enough to keep you re-engaged. I'm using my facial expressions, but keeps you re-engaged. Yeah. Uh, so you you stay with that. So I think the the short answer to your question is it is it is pretty minimalist now. The, right. the kind of thing he's wanting to write. Um, he's very interested also that the text be really front and center. So. He wants mostly to be, uh, there's a lot of homophony and there's a lot of syllabic writing. Um, there are a few parts of the piece later on which are more melismatic. And yeah. there are sort of overlays of texture in some of the, <clears throat> excuse me, slower material. Um, but here it was really, he wanted that driving rhythm. And of course the metaphor is the excavation of a train, which is itself right. a thing that kind of, a propeller-like motion. So he's wanting the the rhythmic energy of the piece to evoke that kind of chugging and digging and driving through the mountainside. Yeah. Also, the the dissonance is very subtle. Yes. It's not it's not a overly dissonant piece. It's it's no. It's consonant and it does have. 
I, I looked at the score, I studied it, and, and it has its dissonance here, but they're very, very um, tastefully done to, for a lack yeah. of something else, for lack yeah. of a better word, you know, just just the right thing so that it's not the same chord as always, right? but it doesn't push you away. Yes. I, right? I, I have a harmony student right now who... Um, uh, uh, the first education was culinary school. And I keep finding we use more and more of these metaphors. Oh, really? So the, the, the flavor is not bitter or acidic, but you do need, you know, bits of vinegar and things like that to, to kind of bring out this, the flavor of the food. So I'm not I'll a good have, I'll, have, I'll have to start using them. You know, no, when you start using those words, I said, you know what? Acidic, uh, all this, you know, they're good. I, yeah. I, <clears throat> I've, I've become a little bit averse to uh, the super dissonant stuff in my, yeah. with time. I, I, uh, I heard a, a violin concerto recently that was based on, on the whole movement was kind of minimalist and, and the main figure was really dissonant. Mm -hmm. and you had six minutes of this figure. And by the third minute, you start to say, okay, I heard it. Anything yeah. else? Fourth minute, five minutes. I was ready to, to, to strangle the composer. I heard it. I swear yeah. I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's valid. You know, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a saying. I don't think there is good music or bad music. It's just, we have all kinds of music now. And I, think, I yeah. You know, you well, asked me in one of our emails to say, right. uh, talk about what makes good music. And I think, well, I'm, I don't think I want to be that person who is making that um, determination. You right. know, there are things I think that are more honorably made than other things, um, yeah. where I have an intuition that's, you know, there's a kind of seriousness of, of purpose and uh -huh. thoughtfulness of choice of what what is notated uh -huh. um, but you, you know it's a different it's a big world um yeah i think there are i think one of the big questions about music is its intersection with memory and both how we encode things in memory whether we, we remember them whether we feel that that's an important aspect for music is do we want it to feel memorable the actual notes and sounds or just what you're describing yeah. as that was an unpleasant experience. You know? <laughs> yeah. I remember. And and you know I knew and, I knew the composer from before and I said, well I know what I'm and a, and a friend told me, no, these are very sweet piece. Really? And I said, okay, well I'll, and then I was going in for a sweet piece from this composer that I know that admires Bartok and admires dissonance in the in the most strong possible way and and then by the end of the piece I said no no this is this yeah. wasn't a sweet piece I'm sorry uh anyway let's go to the other piece that I the Donald Grantham uh sure. this is on a, on a this is an excerpt from a piece made on a Neruda poem right that's right Canción Desesperada what is the poem about in general terms um it's a love story La Canción Desesperada 
Sure, he's been around for a long time. Um, I first knew of him, uh, I had seen his name on a list of people who studied with Nadia Boulanger, oh. um, you know, the, the famous French uh, music teacher of the right. uh, 20th century. Um, and many, many years ago, I'm not sure if he sent it or his publisher sent it, but he had a cycle of uh, Emily Dickinson poems that I've always had in the back of my mind. I've never done them yet. I don't think he knows that, but I've I've retained them as on my to do list one one day. Uh, he he is um, in Texas. I'm not remembering quite now which university he teaches at, but it's one of the Texas universities. Um, he's been teaching composition there for a very long time. I think the piece we just heard, I think it was commissioned by Conspirare, um, which is the group in Texas by conducted by our our friend Craig. Um, but um, I, I believe. Um, anyway, so, and I'm not sure how I came across this piece, whether Don sent it or Craig did, um, but it's very much right up my alley in all the ways we talked about. So it, you know, it's about 20 something minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I love the, I always love the interaction of this kind of virtuoso soloist with the chorus. And in this case, it has three virtuoso solos. It has soprano, baritone, and the violin, right, uh, which is great, and it's it's very. Uh, I think he may have written it for guitar originally, or the other way around, and then recast it with this violin. Um, and the violin is wonderfully used in this piece, and it's always it inspires me how much mileage he gets as a composer out of just one instrument. So the violin brings so much to the table in terms of. Um, energizing the piece. I, th I think one of the challenges always in choral music is it can be hard to get speed uh, and rapid yeah. rapid rhythmic things without instruments. I mean, it, it can be done and people do it, of course, um, but there is a kind of default to something slower in a yes. lot of choral music. And my, I think, temperament uh, mm -hmm. does not live there. So I, I, I like these things where there's some crackle and electricity in the room. Right. <laughs> uh, for the, the piece we just heard from me really has it. Uh, and I think it's interesting, even that recording, we we recorded, uh, we performed that piece. That's a live recording in the Church of uh, St. Um, uh, Francis Xavier in New York, which is a gorgeous um, church, but but very, very churchy church acoustically. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> even in that space, 
it, it the piece has a lot of uh, fire, and you can hear these beautiful soloists. And we heard there the soprano's entrance, which is an offstage entrance. Mm -hmm. So you know he's saying, "I wish there was somebody out there, you know, for me." And there oh, she I is, there you she know, is. there right. she appears, saying, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, "Offstage, so beautiful." I, I, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, there is one question I have to ask you. This is, yeah. this is an important question for me. Um, when you are, when you go into these type of harmonies that are not traditional and sometimes they don't follow the normal progressions, you know, yeah. and um, there are still harmonies you recognize the chords, but they are not linked by the normal progression of chords. Um, do you find that they have a harder time reaching an emotional level with you or with your, your audience or or you don't find that? Well, you know, the words that you used in your question are are tricky, like traditional and normal and things like that. Yeah, so, I know. I know. I, it's it's hard to express these things, but yeah. Um when when you leave the, the normal the the tonal romantic progression of chords, you know, you like the minimalist that we heard before that he hangs on a chord for a while or or these chords yeah. that are somewhat altered and do not you, you cannot fall you cannot see a four five one cadence here. You know it's not there. That you know it's it's not thought that way, right? The composer does is not thinking that way. So does it do you find that they're not that as emotional compelling as what we are more used to? So I, I don't think I would say, I think things work maybe not less, but differently. I see. Uh, and I think there are many things at play. There's how a composer is responding to their musical heritage mm -hmm. and their musical context. And then there is a kind of alchemy that can happen with a talented composer um, where the pitches have a dynamism that compels and makes sense. I see. So it, it's not only a matter of chords, but is there a sort of musical narrative in the air? And I think there are a few of us who work together to make that happen. So the composer's ability... And to me, that is an important part of what a composer is meant to be doing, is that the pitches are imbued with tendency. So one way or another, you feel that things are leading to other things. Right. So, you, are not, you are not just jumping around. Right. Now, there is, I think, another um, sensibility out there where it's about decoration and pattern and not necessarily narrative. So I think the challenge as I see it is that because we are at the moment mm -hmm. asking people to come and sit and pay attention and listen in the same way we would in a movie or a play, there is an expectation that our attention will be compelled and directed temporarily, that we, we right. feel the kind of forward pull. Right through time and the use of harmony and counterpoint and textural variety accomplish that. So that I think is something that you don't need necessarily 
standard harmony to do, but mm -hmm. you have to have an ear that distinguishes between, well, just one thing after another, or somehow things that seem to lead to each other. Um, and I think it's one of the things that the conductor in particular and the performers do is you your ear, if you're listening that way, catches the narrative. And you start to hear, for me, my I've been very fortunate at Juilliard to do a number of operas by Benjamin Britten, a number of uh -huh. the chamber operas with the, the singers there. And I really learned that a lot from Britten, that the notes really, even though they are not they are um, reminiscent of standard harmony in many ways. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. But they are not, they are a 20th century rendition of that in right. the same way Picasso is uses visual um, imagery. Right. Uh, it's the nose, but maybe it's on the side of somebody's face, you know, so. Um, Whitney is one of my favorite composers, by the way. It's just. Yeah, it's brilliant. I just heard Peter brilliant. Grimes. Yeah. It's yeah. incredible. But you hear... Um, nothing, nothing is haphazard. The, the notes, everything seems to mean something. So uh, how that quality of musical meaning is found and then uh, received by us, I think is one of the beautiful um, chemical mysteries of what we do. Um, so I think in the piece you were describing earlier, the concerto you did not enjoy, you know, yeah. maybe... I mean, there are a lot of possibilities of why that experience was not a success, but somehow your own experience was that there was not a not a pull through the story or not in any way that you felt was compelling. So, yeah, plus the sounds were harsh. So it's yeah. Well, I think what happens with with harshness, um, I, I've given a lot of lectures about dissonance in our, our uh -huh. biological musical characteristics. And there is a distinction that people who think about music perception and cognition make between biological dissonance and structural dissonance. So I see. the analogy I will I give is the kind of smelly cheese thing. You know, um, if you think about blue cheese, uh -huh. um, there are people who find that really disgusting and right. people who really learn to love it. Right. So, I don't know where you are on that spectrum, Sergio. I love you. Like, but <laughs> yeah, you like smelly cheese, right? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, those are, that's this, di, blue cheese is a dissonance. I so that's a biological yeah. thing that we at first really resist. And our ear, you know, intervals that are below a little bit narrower than a minor third, we really experience them the way we experience blue cheese. It's a dissonance. Right. So, it's very yes. interesting. I yeah. there is another element I think that uh, I think that harmony, the way that we that Bach and and, and Mozart and Beethoven used it, um, <laughs> is a, is not an invention but a discovery. It, mm -hmm. It's based on these intervals that they were they discovered after many years that work better. For everybody, mm -hmm. and so they, they created this solid mass of these of patterns that can communicate instantly, in, a lot more instantly. What I what I what I keep saying to people is, 
just look at these cultures that had nothing to do with tonal music before the 20th century. Go to Korea. They have mm-hmm. Korean pop. They have yeah. the same chords. They they didn't know what that was before, but once it gets into the culture, the tonal, the those things, kind of people get them pretty fast. Whereas other systems do not are are more made up than discovered. I don't know if if I'm right or not, but if uh, if that is the case, then it's it's a little bit going against the current right now for composers, because we have to find new new ways because it's instinctive. You want to do your thing, but now you are against this body of work that is really masterful. Another another friend used to tell me, you know, the problem is that classical music reached perfection. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do? <laughs> I think you know the Harold Bloom talks about the anxiety of influence, the critic Harold Bloom, and I think we certainly feel the the burden of the past always. Yes. And I think the internet has made that much harder because the past is on YouTube, but you know, a click away. So it's very, and there's so much more of it. Yeah. So even when you and I were in school, there's way more past now than there was then. And it's much more present. Uh, everything is recorded, everything is there. So, you know, it's hard to think of when uh, I often will teach Rite of Spring, I'm teaching it now, and you right. think, you know, when that piece happened, that was a real game changer. Yeah, It's kind of hard to think of what, how somebody would change the game to that extent at this point. So, yeah. and in a way that could still be intelligible. So, but when you look at Rite of Spring, you can see there are a lot of the same, or a lot of what Schoenberg was doing, there are a lot of the same historical uh, inheritance is still present. You know the rhythms and the storytelling in in other ways. So um, I think I am always of the belief that I think history is a big part of who we are as individuals and as a culture. And I think we sometimes have the fantasy that we can start from zero and there's no <laughs> no no past and no culture. But I don't think that is how human beings are as as animals so i think we we live in our context right and i think we will discover new things but yeah they always come you know it's it's not easy and uh you have to think outside of the big box that we are right now in yeah as you say all the present all the past is right now and getting out of the box might have been might be harder than before because the box is huge now yeah no <laughs> so thinking outside of the box will take some work but uh all right with that with that last comment i want to thank you very much for for uh joining me this was uh this was really what i wanted to do with uh with this program that's why it's called let's talk about music because we talk about music and i'm yeah. i'm grateful that you came and that you shared with me your your viewpoints on music and uh and uh, I hope we can do it again in the future at some time. With pleasure. Thank you so much, Sergio, for having me. Thank you. So uh, that, that's all, folks. <laughs>